Well, today we're continuing on in Matthew chapter 2, in verses 1 through 12. And in today's message, we find a very profound irony in that the people of Jerusalem and Herod, their king, did not recognize the true king of the Jews, that is the Messiah born in Bethlehem. And what we're going to find in this passage is the irony grows even deeper when we consider the fact that the Magi that we're going to be reading about, they did recognize the true Messiah, and yet these Magi were pagan-born astrologers from Babylon. And so Matthew could not be any clearer that the first to recognize the Messiah were not the pious leaders from Jerusalem, but pagan soothsayers from Babylon. Now, one of the questions I want to wrestle with is, how do we apply this passage to our lives today as Christians living in the year 2021 in America? Well, notice the title is, Who is Our King? You know, one of the concerns that I think are on the minds of a lot of people, uh, Christians here in the United States and around the world, is that it seems that totalitarianism is on the rise, that the rule of law has broken down, and that the moral right is now defined only with, by those who have the might. And what I would submit to you is that's probably the way it was the year that Jesus Christ was born. Because the Jews who were living the year that Christ were born, that when he was born, they were living during a time where Herod the Great was ruling and reigning over Judah, and he was a ruthless king. He ruled by the dictum, might makes right. In fact, he even murdered his own wife and one of his children. And yet you and I, dear ones, are going to have to learn today afresh like they did, that the ultimate king of the entire world is never going to be a ruler ultimately like Herod, ironically a descendant of Esau, but the true king of the world is always going to be Jesus Christ, descendant of Jacob. And so, dear ones, you and I are going to be confronted again with that question, who is really our king? Is it some president, some member of parliament, a member of Congress, or is it Jesus, the king of the Jews, king of the world. Now, I want to begin here in a very exciting passage here in Matthew chapter 2. We're beginning verses 1 through 2, where we're going to see Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Balaam from Numbers chapter 24, where he indeed is the star of Jacob. Listen to what Matthew reveals. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he said, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. But dear ones, I want you to notice here in the very first verse, Matthew affirms for us that indeed Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet had stated some 715 years earlier in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But also notice that he affirms that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod, the Herod that he's referring to, of course, is Herod the Great. Now, remember, Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., and I believe that Jesus Christ was born in that very year. He was born in 4 B.C., the very last year of Herod the Great's rule. Now, the reason I'm laboring this is I want you to understand, again, that the Bible is rooted in history. Uh, Bob, has been doing, Bob Doy has been doing a great job in our study in the book of Acts, showing us over and over again that when the Bible reveals historical events, they happened. That we're not being given just cleverly crafted myths, but cold, sober truth. These things happened in history. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice in red, the first line that's in red where it says, 
there were magi from the east. The term magi there comes from magos in the Greek, and it had to do originally with a Persian castly system of men who were in service to the king. That is in the area of Mesopotamia. And these would have been men who were dedicated to interpreting dreams. They would have been dedicated to understanding magical arts and astrology. So needless to say, these magi were not men who were devoted to sola scriptura. They were not devoted to scripture alone. And yet God sovereignly, supernaturally led them to be the first Gentiles to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, that term magos is also interestingly used for magi in Daniel chapter 2 of the Septuagint. The Septuagint talks about the magi that were in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so this shows us that indeed that's where they were from. Now, notice here the question that these magi, again, men from Babylon, that's the area, look at the question that they ask. They ask the question in blue, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, the significance of that question, I think, is this. How did they know where the Messiah was to be born? That's a question that we all have to ask. How did these magi, these magicians and astrologers all the way from Babylon, how did they know? Well, one of the reasons I think they may have known is, remember, in the 6th century B.C., Israel had been deported to where? To Babylon. And their scriptures would have been, for time and eternity, I think, deposited there. And I think because these men were interested in religious things, all different religions, they would have taken interest even in the Hebrew Scriptures. In one particular passage, I think that would have stood out in their mind as magi from Babylon would have been that of the prophecy of Balaam. Balaam prophesied that there would be a star rising out of Jacob. And where was Balaam from? He was from Babylon, a magi, as it were, from the east as well. And so I think that that is what tipped them off. They had an awareness of the Hebrew scriptures. But notice here in red, notice they say, for we saw his star. Notice they're attributing a certain star to this rising ruler that would come from Jacob. And the question is over history, was there some natural phenomenon, some astronomical phenomenon that they would have seen that would have tipped them off that the Messiah would have been born? Throughout history, there were three different understandings that scholars have had as to what this star may have been. The first view is that perhaps it was Halley's Comet. The only problem with that, well, there's two big problems. One is Halley's Comet occurs too early. In the time period, that would have come about about 12 to 11 B.C., about seven years too early for this to lead the Magi to Christ. The other problem is I'll talk about in a little bit, when you talk about a star that leads these men particularly to Bethlehem, and I think even to the very house itself, I don't think a comet can do that. The second view has a little bit more going for it, and that was the view by some that perhaps what the Magi saw was a planetary conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn, and it happened in the constellation of Pisces. Now, just to let you know, as I lay this view out, I'm not advising that we learn astrology, but I'm trying to explain what they would have understood, these magi from Babylon. What's interesting about, first of all, Saturn is they would have seen that, that planet as a planet representing the distant west or the land of Israel. That's how astrologers in Mesopotamia would have seen it. Well, combine that with the idea of Jupiter. For them, Jupiter was the royal planet, hence the idea that royalty was 
rising in the west around Israel. Now, combine that with the fact that the constellation Pisces, to a Mesopotamian astrologer, that had to do with the last days. And in Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, it had to do with the last days where this ruler would rise like a star from Jacob. And so perhaps that was the star that these men saw. Still, there's a third view, and this was the favorite view of Johannes Kepler, the very famous astronomer. The third view that he held to was that the star was actually a supernova that Chinese astronomers had discovered between 5 and 4 BC that lasted for 70 days. Now, all of these are somewhat intriguing. I think the second one has the most going for it. But in my opinion, I believe all of these conjectural ideas are probably not where the data suggests uh, the star really came from. I think it was a miraculous star. Now, let me explain why. When we're going to read the data, this star is going to lead these magi not just to the town of Bethlehem, but to, I believe, to the very house itself. And how does a comet or a supernova or a planetary uh, junction, how does that do that? I don't think it does. And so what's very interesting is in the book of Matthew, at the very beginning, at the very end, in Matthew 27, God intervenes supernaturally in history in the work of the Messiah. In fact, when we get to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to see while Jesus is on the cross, there's three hours of darkness. In fact, secular historians verify that these three hours of darkness actually occurred. In fact, it was so dark that people could see the stars at noon. And geographically, this darkness was seen as far away as Libya, all the way to Bithynia, Turkey. And I'm going to prove to you when we get, that, get to that passage in Matthew 27 that this darkness could not have occurred because of an eclipse of the sun. Why? Because it happened during Passover. And astronomically, it is impossible to have an eclipse of the sun during Passover, and I'll prove that to you. No, this is a supernatural darkness that even Flagian, the secular historian who chronicled the Olympics, he lays out for us. So what can we conclude that both in the beginning of Matthew and at the end, God supernaturally intervened in the role of the Messiah, bringing a star about that would lead even these magi from the east to come and worship him. Okay, now, notice here that one thing I think we can glean from Matthew is that I think he depicts these magi from the east as part two to Balaam. Balaam was part one magi from the east. Matthew sees the magi now that he's referring to as part two. And one of the proofs of that is when Matthew was writing the gospel in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, and in Matthew 2, 9, he uses a term, anatole, which has to do with this idea of a star rising, the very same term that's used in the Septuagint of Numbers 24 in Balaam's prophecy. Now, beyond just that, isn't it interesting, in Numbers 22, verse 5, we learn that Balaam indeed came from the east. In fact, in Numbers 23, 7, we see that he came from the area of the great river, the river Euphrates, which was Mesopotamia or Babylon. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up Numbers 24 and show you Balaam's prophecy. And again, I'm claiming that I think the Magi in Matthew's day had an awareness of this. Now, before I put up Numbers chapter 24, I want to remind you of the context of what had happened. Remember, Balaam is this prophet from Babylon. 
and he's hired by this wicked king named Balak from Moab. And what Balak wants to do is he wants to hire Balaam to curse Israel because the Israelites are a threat to Moab, his land. But what does Balaam say? He says, I can only do what the Lord of heaven says. And he says, I can't curse them. I can only bless them. And then he comes up with this profound prophecy, a prophecy of the Messiah born in Israel some 1,400 years later. Numbers 24, 17 through 18a. Balaam, the first magi, says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice here in red, let me pull up my pointer. Notice it says a star shall come forth from Jacob. In the Greek Septuagint, it literally uses the term antele. There's going to be a rising of this star. That's the very term that Matthew uses, Matthew 2.2, Matthew 2.9. Now, what's more, notice this star was used of what? It was used of kings and rulers. And we have further evidence that a ruler is intended because notice the scepter is a reference to a ruler and a king. So what was being promised some 1,400 years earlier by the first Magi, Balaam? By the way, Philo, the, the Jewish historian, he used Magos to refer to Balaam as well. He referred to him as a Magi, a Magi from the East. Well, isn't it interesting that this Magi sees this, mass, this Messiah coming from Jacob, notice, in the last days. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And this prophecy is so specific that not only is he going to tear down Moab, but notice in verse 18, Edom shall be a possession. Now, why is that important in Matthew chapter 2? Because who are the descendants of Edom? Does everyone remember their descendants of Esau? And who was on the throne of Judah at the time? Who was Herod? He's a descendant of Esau. And he has the might, he has the power, he has the swords. He has the chariots, and it seems through him might makes right. But you and I are to believe that he's ultimately not the king of the Jews, king of the world. But it's a little baby boy laid in a manger who's a descendant of Jacob. And he ultimately is going to rule not just over Israel, but the entire world. That's what we see magnificently laid out in these verses. Now, we see that our king was not only prophesied to come from the star of Jacob, he was that from Numbers 24, but we also now see that he's going to be the fulfillment of Micah 5, 2, born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 3 through 5, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Now, dear ones, notice here in red, Herod's unbelief is readily depicted by Matthew. And how sad is this, that here you have the king that is over Judah, and yet there's no joy, there's no rejoicing, there's no desire to understand the true king of the Jews born in Bethlehem. Why? Because Herod, being a true descendant of Esau in form, cares nothing for the promises of Jacob, 
but is only concerned for his own power. That's the issue. And brothers and sisters, what's interesting about that is that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Matthew. That yes, it's rarely the Jewish leadership who see the truth, but rather unexpected people who come to messianic salvation. In fact, notice very importantly in this underline, the underline, notice it says, and all Jerusalem with him. That should be shocking to you. All Jerusalem, it wasn't just Herod the wicked king who was troubled by the fact that the Messiah is going to be a threat to his throne. It was all of Jerusalem. And throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus' greatest confrontations come with the leadership of Israel. In fact, it's going to culminate when you get to Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus in the temple excoriates the leadership of Israel, the leadership of Jerusalem. He says to them, you brood of vipers. How many know that when the Messiah calls you a brood of viper, that's not a ringing endorsement? And then what does he say to them? He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He cites the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118.26. And what does Jesus do? He leaves from there to the Mount of Olives from where eventually he departs, just like what happened in the time of Ezekiel, where the glory of the Lord had departed because of the sins of Israel. He leaves the same way. Their house is left to them desolate. Brothers and sisters, the leadership of Israel didn't understand who the Messiah was. But God sovereignly, supernaturally enabled two magi from Babylon to get it. That should shock us. All right, now, I want you to see here in verse 5, it's very interesting to note that when he asked the question, how do we know where these, or excuse me, where Messiah is going to be born? What's the answer from the religious leaders? Well, it had been written, what, by the prophet. So it isn't an interesting, what we know from divine revelation from Numbers 24, Messiah is going to be born where? In Israel. That's about 1405 B.C. 700 years later, Micah says it's not just Israel. Specifically, it's, it's Bethlehem. Now, what I want you to understand is I'm going to put up Micah 5.2 as Matthew quotes these religious leaders quoting it. But before I do so, I want you to realize that this is blended with 2 Samuel 5.2. So you have Micah 5.2 blended with 2 Samuel 5.2. It's nice that they both end with 5.2. Easy to remember, but I'll explain why he does this. Notice what the scholars said. It said, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the end of the quote. And then it says in verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Brothers and sisters, notice first of all in blue, the Messiah was promised 715 years in advance by Micah 5.2 to be born in Bethlehem. Why is that important that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem? Because that's the city of David. And the Messiah is to be a descendant of David. In fact, the Messiah is the greater David. But it's also significant in what the town represents. Beth is house, Lechem is bread, it's the house of bread. And isn't it fitting that Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life, is born in the house of bread? But he's also referred to as the branch of David, like in Jeremiah or Isaiah 11. And where does he grow up, this Jesus? Nazareth, Branchville. 
So the bread of life is born in the house of bread. He is the branch of David is raised in Branchville. And going back to the bread motif, isn't it interesting that the bread of life born in the house of bread is buried not just on any day, but he's buried after his substitutionary death on the feast of unleavened bread, the sinless bread of life buried on the feast of unleavened bread. And what day is he raised from the dead? The 16th day of Nisan, the feast of first fruits, guaranteeing one day the rest of the harvest will come. Brothers and sisters, what we see here is that Messiah is not just the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies. He is the fulfillment of all of the feasts. And what that shows you is in the day and age where you and I are troubled by the leadership of the world, you and I can be absolutely confident that our faith is well-placed in trusting in Jesus. He is exactly who the Bible claims he is. Now, I want you to see then at the very bottom, notice in blue the second portion, that's where 2 Samuel 5.2 is blended to Micah 5.2 by these religious scholars in Jerusalem. They knew their doctrine. It shows you the real issue was with their heart. They wanted nothing to do with the Messiah that they knew should have come. But why did they blend it with 2 Samuel 5.2? Notice what it says in blue, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The reason that's important, and jot this down, is that was first uttered to David. Now who's on the scene? The greater David, the Messiah who comes from the lineage of David, and obviously it applies most fully to him. Now, despite all of this profundity, notice in verse 7, Herod is still scheming. He still wants to murder the child, even after all of the evidence. It says, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. What is he up to? Well, he wants to know when the star first appeared because he wants to know the age of the children he has to murder in Bethlehem. That's how sick a puppy this guy is. Instead of rejoicing that the Messiah is on the scene of history, he starts plotting and murdering, wants to murder children. In fact, when we get to Matthew 2.16, this explains why he murders all the children ages two and under in Bethlehem. This is one sick man. And yet again, it seems in their age that he's the king. He's got the might, and it seems in their day and age, might makes right, much like what we see today. But again, true believers know that the real king is the baby boy. Now, we come to this amazing contrast here where we see a contrast between Herod, ironically the leader of Judah of the time, his unbelief, and his lack of wanting to worship the king, and these two foreign-born astrologers from Babylon who do worship the king. Notice what it says, Matthew 2, 8 through 9. It says, And he, this is Herod, sent them, that would be the Magi, to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now, dear ones, notice here in verse 8, Herod sends the Magi to Bethlehem because he knew from divine revelation from Micah 5.2 that that's where the son is going to be born. But notice in red, here Herod is pretending piety. It says that, he says that I too may come and worship him. No, dear ones, the leader of Judah doesn't want to worship him. He wants to murder him. And the irony here 
is that we're going to see in the very next slide in the verses that the Magi from Babylon, they do worship what the king of Judah won't. And so all the way through the book of Matthew, what this is, this is foreshadowing for you is that those who really end up having a relationship, ironically, most often with the Messiah, are those who would be considered far off. In fact, remember when you get to Matthew chapter 8, there's a Roman centurion who ends up demonstrating such great faith in the Messiah, Jesus himself says, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And it didn't come from an Israelite, it came from a Roman centurion. And so all the way through the book of Matthew, we see that unexpected people are those who come to saving faith in the Messiah. Because God's elect is greater than just the people with the might the people with the swords. No, it's unexpected people, both Jews and Gentiles, who have faith in the Messiah. Now, notice here in verse 9, this explains what is so unusual about this heavenly star. Notice what it says. It says that it moved on before them until it came and stood over. Literally, in in the Greek, it took its stand over the place where the child was. Now, let me ask you, how can a comet do that? No, a comet's probably not going to do that. Well, in in fact, notice when it says where the child was, these magi are going to go to the very house. And if it was a planetary conjunction, I can see you might get to maybe the nation, but how do you get to the right town and even the right house from a planetary conjunction? No, I think that this suggests that indeed this was a supernatural event. And so whatever the star was, though, what Matthew wants us to see is that it led the Magi, foreign-born astrologers, to be the first of the Gentiles to worship the Messiah. And so we see that unlike Herod's false claim to wanting to worship the king, the Magi really do. Notice here in verses 10 through 11, it says, When they saw the star, this would be the Magi, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice first in blue where it says they rejoiced, what, with great joy. They had exceedingly great joy. That is a sign that they had belief because those who have exceedingly great joy in the Gospels and throughout both the Old and the New Testament are those who have found faith in the Messiah. Turn your Bible someday, you don't have to do it now, but to Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, it foreshadows the millennial kingdom. In fact, it talks about those who have messianic salvation will shout for joy. Listen to what it says in Matthew 25, 21, talking about the millennial kingdom and those who enter it. Remember, Matthew 25, 21, that's where Jesus says to those who trust in him, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he says to them this famous line, He says, enter into the joy of your master. Over and over, those who have faith in the Messiah have exceedingly great joy. That's how it's depicted in the scriptures. And I think that is evidence that indeed, these magi really did have faith in the Messiah. Now, that's doubled down upon by Matthew where it says that they worshipped him. And this worship is evidence that they really trusted These foreign-born pagan astrologers, soothsayers from Babylon, 
But yes, they knew something of the Word of God, didn't they? Something more than did Herod the Great. And what's interesting is they came to faith, and he didn't. Is it interesting what they gave him as worship? Notice it says in the underline that they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's something you give to a king. But what you and I want to have in our minds is, don't turn to this now, but jot down 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Now, what's in that passage? What you will find is that, remember, the queen of Sheba had heard that God had blessed the first son of David, Solomon, with such great wisdom, she had to come and hear it. And so the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, 1 through 10, when she comes to the first son of David, what does she bring in honor of Solomon, the first son of David? She brings gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why? Because that's what you bring to royalty. But now you have someone from far off who's bringing it not to the first son of David, but to the son of David, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh from these men who were formerly far off When you read Isaiah chapter 60, jot these down. Verses 5 through 6 in Isaiah 60, it's all about the millennial kingdom. And in verse 5, when the Messiah who comes back and he reigns, this baby boy grows up. He's going to reign over the entire world. And it says in Isaiah 60 verse 5, the nations will bring to him their wealth. And in verse 6, do you know what they bring him? They bring him gold frankincense and myrrh because this baby boy isn't just the king of the jews he's king of the world and that's exactly how matthew brothers and sisters is depicting him king of the world that's who this messiah is okay brothers and sisters how exciting are the scriptures they show us who really and truly the king is now We see here that the Magi are supernaturally warned by God to leave another way to protect the true king. In verse 12 of Matthew chapter 2, it says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice in red here that the star was a supernatural leading of God, but so were these dreams. And so God used dreams supernaturally not just for the Magi, but later for Joseph. So next week when we're in Matthew, God is going to use a dream for Joseph to supernaturally lead the son into Egypt. So isn't it interesting that there is an exodus for the Messiah? In the first exodus, God protected his son, his firstborn, by leading his son Israel out of Egypt. But now because of murderous Herod, He's going to lead his son, the true son, into Egypt. But in both cases, God protected through an exodus the son. You lose Israel, you lose the son. You lose Jesus, you've lost the son. That's what you and I are to see. And God is supernaturally protecting the son. Now, isn't it interesting also that the Magi here, they go back to their own country by their own way, and nothing else is ever stated about them in all of the Bible. And I think it's interesting to think about, were they true believers? I think the evidence suggests that they were. They had exceedingly great joy, the same joy that the, remember in Luke chapter 2, the angels come to the shepherds, and they say, we bring you good news of great joy. They had messianic joy, and they also worshiped him. I think they were believers. And I can't wait till we're all in glory 
And we can ask these rascals, these magi, how did you figure it out? What were you reading? And I think we'll find that they were reading Balaam's prophecy, Numbers chapter 24. But brothers and sisters, what I want to do is focus, I only have one application point for the sake of time this morning. And that is one thing that I want you to see in these 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Very important we see this. If we don't see it, we're missing it. We're not reading carefully as Bob would admonish us to do. What Matthew is clearly presenting is that there are two kings. You have Herod, who is a descendant of Esau, and he has the might, and it seems that might makes right. He's the true king. But the other king that's depicted is this lowly baby boy, descendant not of Esau, but of Jacob. And what you and I have to be convinced of is though no might doesn't make right, but rather the right is defined by Jesus the king. He is the king and no one else. And where we see this first promise that this is going to occur, that Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, is going to rule over the entire world and everyone will be subject to him, we see this back in Genesis chapter 25, where there's a promise given to Rebekah, a prophecy from the Lord himself, that there were really two nations in Rebekah, two sons of Isaac that represented both Israel and Edom. Let's remind ourselves of this and apply it here to this passage in Matthew 2 with the two kings. In Genesis 25, 23, let's remind ourselves, the Lord said to her, this is to Rebekah, wife of Isaac. Remember, the Lord, all caps, is Yahweh, his covenant name. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Brothers and sisters, notice the first section in blue where it says two nations are in your womb. Literally within Rebekah, you have the Israelites and the Edomites. I'm not reading into that. That's what the Lord himself has revealed. Two nations are within Rebekah, the Edomites and the Israelites. Now, notice here in the second portion highlighted blue, it says the older shall serve the younger. That is a breaking with the natural convention that would occur in that time. In the ancient Near East, it was the older who was given the inheritance rights of the firstborn. But God is breaking that rule to show that his sovereign choice stood, that it was Jacob that he had sovereignly selected. And according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, it was based on nothing that they had done, whether good or bad, so that God's sovereign choice would stand. The boys had done nothing. So why is it so critical? You see, the firstborn was very important. You had the inheritance rights, but you also, as the firstborn man, if you were in a family, you had the privilege and the responsibility of representing the family before God. Esau ends up showing his true colors, no pun intended, because he looks red. But he sells his birthright in the privilege of representing the family before God for a bowl of beans. Remember, he says, I want some of that red stuff. Ironically, the man who looks red sells his birthright for the red stuff, and he lives in a place, Adom in Hebrew, which means the red place. In fact, you go there, even when we took our trip in Israel, you can see where Edom was, south and southeast of Israel, and it's red rock. The red man sells out his birthright for the red stew, and he lives in the place that looks red, one day the Messiah is going to be splattered with his red blood. Isaiah 63. 
Why? Because the true king is going to come from Jacob, not from Esau. So says God. And so we see in this text that Esau will serve Jacob. Another way of putting it, Edom will serve Israel. Now, let's think about at the very first Christmas, 4 BC, Herod the Great is on the throne. And he seems to be the ruler in charge. He has the might, and might makes right. But let's remind ourselves that in the end of the day, he's really an Edomite. By the way, I don't know if you can see this. You can look at your own handout. It's a little small, the print, but I had to fit it all on there. But I want to talk about how we know that Herod the Great was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. First of all, we have to know that the Edomites historically became what are called Edomians. Now, how did that happen? Well, there was a group called the Nabataeans. There was also Arabs who did this, but they kept attacking Edom, and they became weaker and weaker. Well, as they were kicked out of their land, their names changed to Edomians. Edomia is a Hellenistic way of saying out of Edom. Now, what happens in history is in 134 B.C., these Edomians are forced to convert to Judaism by one of the Maccabees named John Hyrcanus. So now you can see how the Edomians, all of a sudden they become people involved with Judaism. And then one of them rises to great prominence as a general named Antipater. This is the great-grandpa of Herod the king, Herod the Great. So Antipater, he's the general of Edomia, 103 B.C. to 76 B.C. Well, one of his sons is Antipater II. He ends up becoming the procurator over Judea in 47 B.C. This man has five children. One of them is Herod the Great, who was placed on the throne of Judah in 37 B.C. So follow the logic. Notice on the screen, who is Herod the Great? He's an Edomian, which means out of Edom. And who are the Edomites? Descendants of Esau. So at the very first Christmas, here's the presentation that you have before you, the two different kings. And which one are you going to trust in? You're going to trust in the descendant of Esau, even though he had the might? He had all the weapons? He had the chariots? Or are you going to trust in this little baby boy who was born in a manger? Brothers and sisters, I have grown increasingly concerned and alarmed about the direction of our country. It seems that lawlessness is rampant in our country today. And I think you get the idea that only might makes right at times. But dear ones, what I'm having you consider is this is the way it was in Christ's day. And yet when this question is who really is your king was posed to the Magi, they overwhelmingly said it's not Herod, descendant of Esau. It's Jesus, descendant of Jacob. Brothers and sisters, that's the question before you. Who is really your king? Don't let the bleakness in the, of our temporary situation on earth here today rob you of your joy or confuse you. Because this baby boy, the descendant of Jacob, laid in a manger, he grew up. And he died for sins once and for all. He was raised bodily from the dead. He ascended to the heavens. He was seated at the right hand of God. And this baby boy is coming again to bring a glorious kingdom in which all the nations will bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because this baby boy is not just king of the Jews. He's king of the world. That's where your hope 
and your trust should be, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that the true king is Jesus. No matter what our situation, we bow our knee to him alone. And I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters that we would continue to persevere and worship and serve him, that you would take away the fear of man and what man can do, and that we would fear he who can destroy both body and soul in hell alone. I pray, Heavenly Father, in the weeks and months and years that we have ahead of us, that you would enable us to persevere, trusting in this true king, and that you would put his gospel upon our lips so others may come to faith in him, even those who may be far off. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me uh, have you remain standing. I'll give you the benediction here. Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen.